wrestling. We'll read from verse 28 to the end of the chapter of Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. Do please return to be with us for the evening service. Brother Dale Byron will be speaking, and then we'll have testimony with Gideon with Brother Ralph Sisson. So please join us at 6 o'clock this evening for that service if you would. Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And may I encourage you not to forget nor let slip by your uh, refreshing study of the Scriptures the fact that those two things in verse number 29 to be conformed to the image of his son and that you might that he might be the firstborn among many brethren are the two purposes for why you've been saved and uh, as I said in the morning we preach from the text of Romans 8 and verse 29 it isn't first of all that you be saved from hell it is not so much that you get to go to heaven the first thing that God has as a priority for you is that you be conformed to the likeness of his son and two, that you put his son first. That's what the ideal of being the firstborn among many brethren is. It's, he's to be the exalted one. He's to be the one higher than all others. He's not one among equals. He's above all others. And the ideal is that God wants you to bear his son's image, and God wants you to put him first. And you will put him first. You'll either do it here, or you'll do it later, or you'll do it here, and you'll do it later. But you will do it. So the whole point is, if you're a child of God, those are the two points a purpose that God has for you and the more you cooperate with what God's doing in your life now through his word and his spirit will bring you to that kind of purpose and I hope that you'll get a grip on that because we so often take what we call secondary purposes and make them priority with God this is a priority Romans 8 29 to conform us to the image of his son that we might be that he might be the firstborn among many brethren verse 30 moreover whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I speak to you about arresting questions with awesome answers. I don't know of any other, better way to describe what you have in verses 31 and following than to describe it that way. Let me begin by speaking to you about questions, though, Bible questions. I've noticed that the Bible has many situations that are recorded where life-changing questions were asked. And, in fact, if I, if I could say so, I don't think there's any study of the Scriptures that would be more revealing to you and also more fulfilling and, I think, personally exciting than to do a study of the Scriptures on the questions that are, are asked therein to just simply go through all the Bible and find out all the questions that are asked. We're familiar with the first question that was asked in the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament, the very first question that was ever recorded asked. Let me take you back to it for a moment. It's in Genesis chapter number 3, and strangely enough, we often miss it, but Satan asked it. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
Now, uh, we know it, I hope you know it, that in your Bible, the punctuation is not inspired. So uh, if you want to challenge whether or not this is the first question or not, have at it, no big thing with me. But the fact is, in our English Bible, that's the first question. He says, you really believe that? Is that what he said? You really? And so it's a question, and it's a question that Satan was, in fact, asking of, of Eve in this case. Now, the fact is that the first question that is asked then, notice that we look at verse number 9 of chapter 3, the Lord God then called unto Adam. So here's the first question Adam gets. He says, where art thou? That's the first question God asked man. He said, where art thou? That's an interesting one because that's been what we do in the whole ministry is trying to help people find out where they are in relationship to God. And that's a very important question to start the Bible out with is, where are you? Where are you in relationship to God? And your relationship with God will dictate, your relationship with God will dictate, it will have effect on all other relationships you have. All other relationships you have. So if that one's not on square, then the others won't be on square. If that one gets out of tilt, then the others will get out of tilt. The fact is that one has to be correct. And that's important that that's the very first question that God asked man, where art thou? But then there's probably, from my standpoint, one of the most revealing questions, and I think uh, most stirring question comes in chapter 3, but in verse 13. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. He says, And the Lord God said unto the woman. So now God is speaking to the woman. And in this particular case, he asked her this question. This is the most stirring question to me in the whole context of the fall of man. God said, what is this that thou hast done? And you imagine God looking at you and saying, what is this that thou hast done? I don't know about you, but when I read that, I, I think that it, it suggests several things of what God was implying. One of them is, I think it was if, as if to say, Eve, you have no idea what process you have put in motion. You have no idea what the end cost will be for what you did. You have no idea. What is this that thou hast done? And I say to you, it's important, therefore, when God gives them directive that you follow it carefully because he could ask you the same question. Do you understand what you have done? I told you to do this, and you did this. Do you have any idea what you have done? Most of us don't. We take too lightly those things. Now let me take you to the New Testament. Skip over, if you could, please, to Matthew chapter 2, a question that we are confronted with in chapter 2 of Matthew. Chapter 2, verse number 2 says, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Of course, that's about the, the wise men who came to find the Lord Jesus Christ, and that, of course, relates to his birth. It's interesting to me that God's pursuit was of man, and he asked, Where art thou? And then man comes along pursuing God, and he says, Where is he? Where is he? Where is this guy that's going to change all the course of history? And these wise men said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? To us, he would say, where is he that is the savior of the world? Where is he? There's another question. This one relates to his death. It's in Matthew 12, chapter 27 in verse 22. Pilate saith unto him or unto them, talking to the Jews, he says, what shall I do with, them, with, with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all say unto him, let him be crucified so the question about his birth is where is he that is born king of the jews about his death is what would you have me do with this man jesus what you want me to do about him what's what's your pleasure and their pleasure was crucify him kill him get rid of him but my favorite new testament question i guess relating to the lord jesus christ is that one that is asked by the angel and that one comes in luke chapter 24 and verse number five and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth they said unto them why seek ye the living among the dead i love that one the angel says to those people who came to that garden tomb that morning why do you seek the living among the dead uh, almost uh, almost as if to say you know better why did you come here why are you seeking the living in a dead place you don't seek living people in a dead place. Why are you seeking the living here? And I can almost see the angel maybe just a bit frustrated. You should have known better. Why'd you show up here? He's not here. As the angel says later, he is risen.
But probably the most important question in the whole New Testament, probably, it may be up for debate, but probably the most important question in the whole of the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 16, and it's in verse 30, and it was asked by a keeper of the prison. And that was Acts 16, 30. He came to Paul and Silas, the keeper did, after there had been an earthquake, and he said to them, What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I believe it's probably the most important question in the whole of the New Testament. What must I do to be saved? Because first off, everybody has to answer that one. Everybody. What must I do to be saved? And you must give an answer. You must say, well, here's how I got saved. Here's what I did. It didn't say what I suggest you do. It said, what must I do? In other words, what is required? What is the absolute bare essentials for this to become a reality in my life? What must I do? Here's what you do. And Paul answered it. In fact, if you have it, this same question on your mind or in your heart, I can give you an inspired answer because Paul answered it. In Acts 16, 31, he simply says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So the ideal is it's not hard and it's not complex. In fact, the matter is that it was true then, and it's true now. Same way to be saved. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't jump through hoops. You don't climb church steeples. You don't jump pews. You don't get baptized in every baptistry. And you don't do all the crazy things that we sometimes refer to as rituals. What you do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Simple and sweet. God made it simple because we're a simple people. And it is important and imperative that you understand this simple responsibility that we have. But if you've trusted Christ as Savior, then I rejoice with you. If you haven't, we'd be delighted to sit down with you after the service and share with you from God's Word so you can know more if you have questions more than what this question proposes. But the fact of the matter is, when we come to the text of Romans chapter 8, these are questions for believers. When the text of Romans 8 came up for study, I must tell you there's a lot of things went through my mind as to how to approach it. But I think the best way to do it is just let the questions be set before you and then answer them in accordance to God's Word. Look at Romans chapter 8, if you would. The passage of Scripture is filled with questions. And they are written, the text is, to believers. And so, therefore, what's written here is written to people who are born again, saved by the grace of God. So if you're not a believer here, these questions won't mean nearly as much to you as they will everybody else. They were written with a purpose. Look at verse number 31 of Romans 8. Paul writes, he says, What shall we then say to these things? That's the first question of the text. What shall we say then to these things? Uh, I would tell you, first of all, that Paul uses this same phrase quite often. For instance, skip back, if you would, to chapter number 4. We covered it back then. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul said, What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? When we came over to chapter 6, verse 1, Paul wrote, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then here we came to chapter 8 and verse number 31. But then when we get over to chapter 9, we'll look at it again in verse 14 where he says, For as many as are, excuse me, chapter 9, verse number 14, not chapter 8. Chapter 9, verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And then we'll see it again in verse number 30 of chapter 9 when he says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? So there's a phrase that the Apostle Paul used quite often. And it has a purpose in his phrasing it the way that he did because when he speaks about what shall we say then to these things, he's saying... And some folks would say, well, I think he's talking about the whole chapter of chapter 8 to this point. Maybe he is. I don't think so, but maybe he is. I'll give you that. It could be. I think, rather, he's talking about just what he came away from, which was those five links in that chain that he just referred to in verse number 29 and verse number 30, where he said he talked about foreknowledge, he talked about predestinated, he talked about being called, he talked about justification, and he talked about glorification. And then he asked the question, what shall we say to these things? I think he's saying, based on all these things already being a done deal, these things are already, as it were, past tense with God, even though glorified will be a future thing for you. I think what he's saying, all these things are true of you. What shall we say then with all this security that God has built into these five links? And I think that's what he's going to enter into in these texts. 
I think that's what the, these things are. Now, I don't know why there would be anybody who had read through Romans chapter 8 up to the point we're at in our study and have any doubts about their salvation. But obviously, the latter part of chapter number 8 is written to somebody or some somebodies who had some lingering doubts about salvation because that's what it all is about. It's about you being absolutely sure without a shadow of a doubt that when you die, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And these questions are geared to that end. So he starts out with, by saying in verse number 31, what shall we say then to this? What we should say is, after you know all this, is praise the Lord. I'm secure, I'm safe, and I, if I die this hour, I know I'm going to be with the Lord. That's what we should say. But he follows it up with another question. Notice, if you would, verse 31, his question is, note carefully, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now, just let that soak in and sink deep. If God be for us, who can be against us? Name them. Tell me about them. If God is for you, and that's his whole point, remember? He foreknew you. He predestinated you. He called you. He justified you. And one day he's going to glorify you from your standpoint, even though from his it's already a done deal. Now you tell me somebody, when God's gone to all these details to take care of you and secure you, you tell me, if God be for you, who can be against you? That's his point. And nobody can be against you in a sense. And this is the sense. And this is an important thing. By the way, you should note that that first little two-letter word, if, I don't know my Greek as well as some uh, Brother Rod would know his, but the fact of the matter is I do know this. This is, is the Greek called a conditional participle. And I do know that in the definition of that, it is the setting forth of a fulfilled condition, not the possibilities of one. I do know that much. And what that means to say is, it's not if in the context of what our English language says, well, if you do this, I'll do that. It's not a conditional. In fact, this word could be translated, since God be for us, name somebody that's going to be against us. Or because God is for us, who in the world could be against us? You could translate it that way, and it would not do harm to the point that it is trying to make. My point would be simply this. The first thing that hit me when I read that text is this. For something or someone to take away my salvation, that something or someone would have to be bigger, greater, more powerful than God Almighty. And I haven't found such a thing or person. And so until I do, the fact is that this, is, this text is saying no lesser power can have any effect on your salvation. No lesser power can impact your salvation. If you are anchored in the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, the fact of the matter is, is God is for you and God has gone to all the trouble and of all these things that he's put in this golden chain of security. His point is God's for you. Now you tell me somebody that can undo what an omnipotent God has done for you. Tell me. That's what he's asking. If God be for us, who can be against us? It's important to understand the, the who in this and the point he's making with that. In question of who can be against us, that means with the idea of undoing what God has done. So please understand that, okay? Uh, you could take the question a couple of different ways. The question on the text or in the text is, uh, who can undo what God has done for you? Or who can back away or take away the salvation that God has secured for you? That's what the question is, okay? There is a side of it that there is an answer other than no one. And that's this. It does not mean, please get this, it does not mean that no one is against you. You get the point? That's not what he's saying. <laughs> he's not saying, once you become a Christian, everybody's going to love you to death. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying there'll be nobody stand against you when you stand up for Jesus Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's not asking you, name me some people that are, are going to be against you once you trust Christ or since you have. That's not his point here. The fact of the matter is he knows full well, as you know full well, that there will be a multitude of people who will stand against you. But his point is nobody can stand against you with the intent to take away the salvation you have in God. 
God's for you. God's locked this thing down. And your salvation is secure as if you were already there. And when Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, he talked about them already sitting in the heavenlies. As if to say, it's as good as you sitting there right now. It's a done deal. And it's as done and deal as it can be when it's in God's control. And God did that. That's what the verse is saying. But by surely, as surely as Satan showed up in the Garden of Eden to try his best to derail God's plan for Adam and Eve, you can bank on this. He or one of his demons will show up to derail everything God is up to in your life, my life, your home, my home, our church, and our community. You see, you have to understand that the devil is a liar and a murderer and he hates God more than you could ever fathom. And he hates everything that God is up to. Everything that God is doing that's good, Satan hates it with equal passion. By the way, have you ever noticed the people who disagree with us on issues, and you'll watch them on some newscast or you'll read their articles, have you noticed that they speak with the same passion we speak, but only from a different point? I mean, they, there are people in this world who believe that homosexuality is a God's gift to man. Just as much as you and I know that the Bible says it's an abomination to God. And they'll argue their point just as strongly and sweat in the process just like you and I sweat with passion to communicate our point. They are just as fervent, they're just as committed, they're just as dedicated, and they're just as sure they're right. You know why? Because the devil behind it all is just that way. He hates God so much and he works just as hard as any of any of us could ever work to make sure that God looks just as bad as he can make him look. And I say to you that the Bible is very clear. First Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8. Peter wrote, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, that person that's against you, that enemy, the one that stands against you, works against you, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walking about, or walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The word in the Greek for devour is an interesting one. It literally means to drink down in a gulp. It's almost like taking a pill. You know, you put it in the mouth, take a swallow of water, and you gulp it down. That's what the Greek word means for devour in that context. It literally is the idea of to totally swallow up. He's out to totally swallow you up. He's not just up to put you out of business. He's actually out to do away with you, to swallow you up, to drown you, to do you away. The fact of the matter is that Satan and his demons that are here on this earth operative and the demons that are in hell, if there are any there, the point made about all that is this, that they are against you. And they'll do everything they can to stop you and stop God's purpose in being fulfilled in your life. The fact of the matter is, but they're all helpless. Please get this. They're all helpless when it comes to doing anything that weakens or destroys your salvation. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, you just name anybody, anything that can be against you and stop, hurt, separate you from this salvation. Just name them. Well, Satan is, a, is an uh, absolute... Uh, challenging foe nobody doubts that but he can't take away your salvation he can make you feel less than saved and less than secure but he can't take away your salvation he can't touch your salvation because God's already secured it it's a done deal so the fact of the matter is what you want to watch out for is to watch out for the devil because he is against you I'm convinced so our Lord was trying to encourage us not to let our eyes focus so much on the enemy as he wanted us to focus on the security. And I think that's why he wrote 1 John chapter 2, verse number 14, when he said, I have written unto you fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning, and I have written unto you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Every believer in this room, from a salvation standpoint, has already overcome the wicked one. He can't get to you. He can't do anything that relates to stopping or, or severing your salvation from between you and God. Can't do it. 
and you've overcome the wicked one, as it were, from that standpoint. But there's something else that's against you, and it's a little bigger, broader, but maybe not as powerful as the devil. John chapter 15 and verse number 18 says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. In verse 16 or verse 8 of chapter 16 of John said, And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. What's interesting about that is that we forget this so often that the world hates God. Just the same way that the devil hates God, the world hates God. The difference is that the world does against God and works against God in subtle ways that so often God's people don't catch on to. And what happens, we end up courting, as it were, with the enemy. We have a tendency to go along with the enemy because we somehow thought that this was okay, good, and acceptable. I say this to you and say it carefully, but when the Lord comes back, as chapter 16 of John says, when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Let me remind you of something. The Christian who knows and is certain of the relationship with Jesus Christ and has a daily intake of God's Word and is trying his best under the Holy Spirit's leadership and power to be a doer of the Word and not just a hearer is by their very life going to be a reproof to the world of sin every Christian in this room your life ought to reprove the world of sin just like the Lord will do when he came and what he's talking in the context here the Holy Spirit coming when the Holy Spirit comes he as it were convicted the world of sin righteousness and judgment I've got news for you the truth of the matter is since the Holy Spirit indwells you your life your family's life ought to convict the people around you who do not know Christ as Savior of their sin and how long has it been since you saw somebody so holy that they actually bothered people to be around them? You know anybody so holy that it bothered you to be around them because you were not as holy? I don't know them. But the fact of the matter is that's what this is all about. When he, the Holy Spirit, is come, he'll reprove the world of sin. Wait a minute. He indwells every believer. Then shouldn't every believer's life be so reflective as a mirror on the wall that says, I'm indwelt by God and that ought to convict the people around them? The problem is, the problem is, our external lives don't chive with the standard of holiness that the Holy Spirit has. You see, if you were as holy outside as the Holy Spirit is on the inside, yes, we would. We'd convict the world of sin. You got in a conversation with somebody and they started using foul language. Boy, lights would go off, bells would ring, and these people around you right away know that you do not agree with that, that God Almighty is offended by that kind of lip service, and it's awful, and it's horrible, and it's wicked. Now you say, well, don't you think they'd begin to dislike you if you spoke up there? Let me read the verse again. It says, if the world hates you, you know this, that it hated me first. Excuse me. Did you think they're going to love you to death while you stayed here and live for Christ? Did you somehow get this warped, devilish, demon idea that the world's just going to love you to death? By the way, everybody talk about the Pope, how he was Christ-like. You'll forgive me. You'll forgive me. But if he'd have been as Christ-like as he should have been, they would have not loved him. This verse of Scripture says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And it did hate him. It did hate him. You say, well, are you sure they hated him? Yes, I am sure. In fact, let me tell you what else he said. And I think this is a, an interesting thing. It comes in chapter 16 of John, if you want to see it in your Bible. John chapter 16, verse number 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament. And what he's talking about is death. Jesus Christ said, I'm going to die. This is in chapter 16. He said, I'm going to die and, and you're going to weep and lament. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers. He said, you folks are going to cry. You're going to weep. What people do at funerals. You're, you're going to see me crucified and you're going to cry and weep. Now you need to look at the rest of the verse. But the world, but the world shall do what? Say it louder. Rejoice. Rejoice. 
When Jesus Christ was hanging suspended between heaven and earth on a cross at Calvary on Golgotha's hill, the world was as happy campers as has ever been hit the earth. Ever. I mean, they rejoiced. Jesus Christ has finally died. There'll be nobody else convicting, bothering, bugging us about this religious stuff. Wrong. All of his offspring were. Those who were born into his family were. They were supposed to take his place. And everywhere they went, there ought to be a God consciousness of the people who bumped into them. You listen to me and you listen to me good. Every single one of you folks, when you leave here today and everywhere you go and every place you find yourself stopping, parking, sitting, resting, you ought to be in that place, the very essence of the presence of God. And you ought to be for that moment, for that time, in essence, the reproving agency to anything that's wrong around you. You say, well, that'll just get people not like us. Forgive me. You're not here under the great plan of how to win friends and influence people. You're here to reflect the likeness of the Son of God. Remember, verse 29, conform to the image of God's Son. And I'm saying to you, you're supposed to be exactly like Him. Pattern your life. Model Him. Find out what He did. Find out what He said. Find out when He said it. And you say, man, I tell you, I don't, I don't think I can live with that. I mean, I mean, they just didn't like him at all. That's right. Our problem is we don't want not to be liked. And we're actually willing to compromise our Christianity in order to be liked in this world. And that's exactly where we are. And we can, we can explain it away. We can talk about all the ramifications of all that. And we can talk about, well, if you're loving and kind, you'll reach more people. And all. I'm telling you now, the fact of the matter is that hasn't worked. And the reason it hadn't worked is because we're not pattering Christ. We're pattering Him here, but the sad thing about it is all of us sort of agree with it. I mean, not everybody may not, but the fact is, generally speaking, everybody here agrees with that. But the moment you get off of this parking lot and off of this property into the businesses of this city and on the streets and byways of this community, folks out there, they don't care who you are. They'll flat out tell you they don't like religious things. They'll tell you in a heartbeat. They don't believe that homosexuality is such a bad and wicked thing. If you don't believe that, go ask the paper. And Marcus got to interview Cherry Connor. I told him I didn't think he'd get to. He came and, uh, uh, he came and interviewed me for that. Uh, art. By the way, I'd like to see a copy of that when you get done with that. And he got to talk to her. And, uh, of course, she's, she's just like we are. Just like I said, she's just as passionate about what she believes about homosexuality as we are passionate about what we believe about it. And that's what we should expect. We should understand that. By the way, until God did a work in our hearts, we probably would believe the same thing, you see. And that's why it's important for one, for you to live Christ-like in a godless society. And two, that's why it's important for you to speak up and stand up for that which is right, even if the world hates you. And our Lord said, I just encourage you to remind you of this, they hated me first. I stood for what was right, and they hated me, and they're going to hate you the same way. Offense, and the offenses come because he opposed their wicked lifestyle, their wickedness of life, and I say it's going to happen the same way to you and I. By the way, and, and we need to catch on to this, in the, in the cases with all of what the world puts out, the, the movie industry, the local medias, the TV media, the whole ten yards of these people, you need to keep it before you. They've all got a sermon to preach. There has never been a movie made. Never been a movie made. Never been a movie made that did not intend to be a preacher of some kind of standard. Don't ever forget that. Every, every movie ever made had a purpose. And its purpose was by its producer to get you to think the way he thinks. And so he puts it in a scenario, in a setting, where you'll be most likely to agree with his principle. If he doesn't want you to like religion, he'll put some idiotic, stupid, nerdy-looking preacher in the program. And you'll not like that guy. He'll always be a guy carrying around a Bible and holding it up and sticking it in somebody's face. And you'll just get right off the bat, I don't like that preacher in this story. What, do you, what did he just do? He did exactly what he set out to do. He made his point. He preached his sermon, and the sad thing is most of God's people get suckered into that. 
We get suckered into that. We, we watch it and we say, I don't think it had anything to, oh, it didn't have anything to do with it. Like water doesn't have anything to do with mud. It had everything to do with it. It makes us think the way they think. And if we get to thinking the way they're thinking, we'll become just like them. Accepting our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what they do, no matter how many sermons they preach, this world cannot touch our salvation. Because if God be for us, who can be against us? Satan can't take it away. The world may make you less than suitable service for God, but he can't take away your salvation. I say that it's important for you to understand and me to understand that you have your enemies. If you stand up for Christ, there'll be people who will not like you, and you might as well get used to that. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then it may be that you'll probably want to go live in a monk's monastery somewhere and just be there by yourself in your Christian faith. But when you meet people out in public, a few weeks ago a man came by the church, wanted to talk. We began to talk, and he began to tell me a story. And he said, now, Reverend, I just got a few things I want to say, and, and I want to ask you a couple questions, and, and I'll be on my way. We stood and talked for a few moments, and it became very obvious he wanted me to agree with him about his lifestyle and the things he was doing, had done, and was going to continue to do, and he made that pretty clear right up front. And um, consequently, I let him talk. And when he got through talking, he said, Now, Reverend, what do you say about all that? <clears throat> I said, First of all, it's obvious that you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And because of that, nothing else I say, you're going to agree with me on. Because until you're born of the Spirit and born again, as the Bible says, and I quoted John 3 and had a Bible on the four-year table, and I opened it up and I showed him from John chapter 3 a passage of Scripture about Nicodemus coming to, to, to Christ by night. And I explained the new birth as I could from that. And I said, the first thing that has to happen in your situation, you have to have a new birth. Or you're always going to think the way you're thinking and you're always going to think your thinking is right and it's not right it is absolutely wrong and I don't blame these people who did what they did and I don't I don't have any doubt in my mind they did exactly what most other people would do if you did the things you're saying to me that you did what you did is atrocious horrible and it's very wicked and God hates every part of it now my friend if you want the truth that's the truth he turned on his heels and went out the front door and never said a word. And he said, okay, Pastor, you should have been more loving and more gracious and more kind and you should have put on it. No, I should not. Let me tell you something. The best friend this world has are people who tell them the truth. The truth is this world is engulfed, as it were, in sin and Satan is keeping the lid on it. And if somebody doesn't come along and share the truth and shoot straight, I'm saying to you, it's not going to, it's not going to rescue, any, rescue any of the perishing. We're just going to make it comfortable while they, while they perish. And that's not our job. We're not supposed to set the thermostat so the world gets comfortable in their sin. We're supposed to help them to get uncomfortable in their sin. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is saying, this world may be against you, Satan may be against you, everything else may be against you, but if God is for you, none of them will have any impact on your salvation. Notice Paul's answer to the question, verse number 31, when he says, What shall we say then to these things? God be for us, if God or since God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, notice it very carefully. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things what uh, you need to do and un underline in your Bible if you do such a thing is note what God is doing for us in this verse of Scripture and it's very important you can tell that God is for us and you can tell it for yourself that God is for us by the great extent he went to for us you see what he did how could I tell somebody that God is for us well I take them to verse number 32 Here's how God is for you, and here's how you can be sure he's for you. He spared not his own son for you. He spared not his own son. He spared not his own son. I don't be, be, believe there'd be anybody who'd look at that and say, well, but, but tell me how, how I know God is for me. Let me tell you something. If somebody's willing to give up their only son for them, 
I'd say he's for you. He's for you. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ was given up for because God loved us. You see, since God has already given us, as it were, the universe and the earth, the world, the heavens, greatest gift than any other lesser gift, I don't think at all God would withhold those things. And that's what the verse is saying. If he's given you the greatest gift, which is his son, the savior of the world, to save you from your sin, do you think God is going to withhold any lesser gift from you if it's beneficial to you? I don't think so. He's already given you his best. Why would he hold any lesser things from you? Why? Well, he wouldn't if he's already given you the best. I said to Brother Brummett this week, and I've said it to other men at other occasions, I said to him, I said, I think now that you can probably survive anything because you've experienced life's hardest thing. You have buried your mate. And I don't think there's probably anything that is harder for people to do, and especially, I might add, men to do, than to bury their mates. And I said, all the other things will be secondary to what you've had to do in these last few days. And he said, I believe that. I believe that. That's sort of this idea. If God has given you his best, then what would he not give you? And he owns the cattle of a thousand hills and all the wealth and all the mines. You tell me what he wouldn't give you since he's given you his best. And that's what this verse of Scripture is about. Verse number 32. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us. And you ought to underline that because remember it is verse 31 if God be for us and verse 32 he that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all of this is about us from God's perspective and he's excited about it for us but I remind you again it ought not be from our point of view for us we ought to think about how to glorify him he thought about us we ought to think about him how can I honor him how can I glorify him but back up here in verse 32 it says he he is saying he delivered him Christ Jesus that's God's only son up for us and down in verse number 34 notice what it says there we'll not get to it today but verse 34 who is he that condemneth it is Christ that died yea rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us and back up in verse 26 of Romans chapter 8 it was the spirit that maketh intercession for us my point is if God done all these things for us and he's made it for us who have the golden five golden chain links of security that we talked about in verse 29 and 30 the fact is all those people are secure as secure can be and God's for us therefore nothing can be against us to take away our salvation and on top of all that, God has done all these other things for us. He's making intercession for us through His Son and through His Spirit. My point is how thoroughly God has taken care of us. He is and He has been and He will continue to meet and master every challenge that every Christian ever confronts. And the reason is because He gave us His best in the first place. All these other things, though they seem secondary to us, are equally as important. The evidence that God is for us is made so public that the world at large acknowledges that Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary. What that was was a public demonstration that God is for us. God is, as it were, on our side. And what God did in the past is a measure of his work both in the present and in the future. What I mean by that is that simply he is able to keep you secure. The way I look at it, it absolutely would be a waste and he absolutely would not waste the death of his beloved only begotten son to save sinners if he did not have the means and the power to keep them saved. You see, it'd be foolishness on God's part to send his son to the cross to die for man's sins, but then God unable to keep people saved once they got saved, once they trusted Christ. If he didn't have the power and the ability and the means, the measure to keep them saved and secure, then it wouldn't have made any sense to save them in the first place. And yet that's exactly what the passage is saying. And God's done it and doing it and is continuing to do it day in and day out. One point, too, and it's an important point. Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, let me read a couple of verses before we close this message. In Genesis chapter 22, you have the story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac. 
It's an interesting story because it parallels the verse here in Romans chapter 8. Parallels in the sense, look at Genesis 22 verse 1. Genesis 22 verse 1, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Verse number 2, And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, Offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. So here you have God telling Abraham, I want you to offer your son Isaac as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering. Then look, if you would, at verse number 10. In verse number 10, he's on the mountain. He has his son tied down, and he's getting ready to sacrifice him. Verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son, Verse 11, the angel of the Lord called unto him out of the heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Then look at verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram, a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, Abraham went, took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. What's important about the passage is in verse number 12, God seeing that Abraham had no intentions of withholding his son from the Lord in sacrifice. God looks down from heaven, and the angel speaks on God's behalf and said, Now I know that you would not withhold your son. You're giving him up for us, for God. I know that. I see it. It's clear. It's evident. And then what's amazing about it, and here's where the stories take different roads. Abraham looks behind him and finds a ram. And word, of course, to Abraham is, and seeing it, he takes the ram and lays it on the altar, cuts his son loose that had been bound there, lets him go, and they sacrifice the ram. The story differs in that whereas God offered his son a sacrifice for sin and there was no ram that would have worked it could have been a thousand rams and they would have not worked you see jesus christ was the only qualified one to die for man's sin and god did not withhold his son he gave him up he didn't wait until a substitute was found that they could replace him with there were none for that to happen with so the fact of the matter is the passage of Genesis 22 and the passage here in Romans chapter 8 differ in that Abraham didn't withhold his son, but he didn't kill him either because God drew a line and saw that Abraham was willing and God said, I know you mean business and so let your son go. And Abraham's son was set free. It's hard to believe, listen carefully, it's hard to believe that Abraham could or would withhold from God anything else after this event in Genesis 22 since he had been willing to give up his son. You just think about that. Would he have ever held back anything else since he was willing to give up his son? I don't think so. And that's where the stories come back together because that's Paul's point in Romans 8 verse number 32. Since God gave up his son for you and for this world, the fact of the matter is, will he not freely give us all things? In fact, it's the same thing that Peter wrote about in 1 Peter. Chapter number 1, verse number 3, According to his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby we are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, having given unto us all things that pertain to life and holiness. By the way, those all things that we've read about, we've read about them in Romans 8, 28, all things. In verse 31 here in Romans 8, it's these things. And then in verse number 32, it's all things. And then when we get down to verse 37, it'll be all these things. Let me tell you what all these things are. All these things are the things that God uses to conform you to the image of His Son and to help you put Jesus Christ first in your life. 
God uses circumstances. God uses things. God uses people. And God uses events. God uses all these things. That's why he said in Romans 8, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And good in that context points mostly to the good purposes that God has for you. All these things are working toward helping you conform to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ and putting him first in your life. It's an interesting thing. This week I was uh, reading for some devotional reading. I ran across a verse of scripture, two or three in fact. Two, to be exact. First Chronicles 17, verse 22. For my people Israel didst thou make thine own people forever, and thou, Lord, becamest their God. First Chronicles 17, 24. Two verses later, he said, Let it even be established that thy name may be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God of Israel, even a God to Israel, and let the house of David thy servant be established before thee. Well, when I first read those verses, I was, I was searching for something else, and when I saw the verses, I must tell you, I had to read them a couple of times. But let me tell you what they say in the simplest of language. They simply say, the God of Israel is God to Israel. You see, there's a difference. The God of Israel is a God to Israel. And there's, that's the difference in some of the folks you talk to. You probably talked to people this week or last week or you will this week. And you start talking in conversation about God. And as you do, they'll talk like they know him. They'll talk like, oh, yeah, oh, God and our big buddies. Yeah, big time, you know, man upstairs. They'll talk about God in ways and means and references that, they, oh, yeah, we know God, you know question would be does God know them that way okay. does God know them that way they act like they know God that way but does God know them that way well we know he does in omniscience he knows everything about everybody and all that but I'm talking about in relationship basis because that's what first Chronicles is talking about relationship sure the God of Israel but is he a God to Israel this verse says yes he is now let me make it easy for you to understand uh, Scott and Diana allowed me the last Oh, weeks here I got the opportunity to spend some time with Andrew we'd be out doing something and usually it's uh, missing a golf ball or, or shooting a basketball or, or something of that and uh, shooting a BB gun or whatever have you and I I would say something to Andrew and he would talk about he'd say uh, my dad did this and my dad did this my dad did this this way or dad did that and I said is that right I said, I said is, uh, is uh, your dad a good dad he said yeah He's a good dad. And what hit me was this. You see, men in this room can be, you can be, I guess, and I want to say it right, and I'm sure I've not done this. You can be a father of a son. But you may not always been a father to a son. There's a difference. You can be a father of a son. But you may not always be a father to a son. Or it may be a father to a daughter. You may be a father of a daughter, but you may not always been a father to a daughter. The fact of the matter is, that's what this passage in First Chronicles is talking about. And I think the reason my thoughts were drawn to it was very simply because here in Romans chapter 8, what God is saying is that this God of Christianity is the God of the individual Christian. He puts you and God as a believer. You and God are put together in this verse of Scripture. If God be for us, that's God and us together. If God be for us, you tell me who can do anything to change this relationship. The question is, is God a God to you? Or is he a far off? Is he just the God of Christianity? Or is he your God? And that's what this is all about in Romans chapter 8. 
It's about a passage of Scripture that God is trying to say and communicating to us by His inspired Word. He's saying to you and to me, if I'm your Father, if God is your Father, then I am your Savior, Jesus Christ. But I also want to demonstrate to you the security, the encouragement, the meeting of your needs, the blessing of your life, the leadership, the guidance in your life that need be done. I'm your God. I'll take care of all that. And it's all based on God giving Himself. God giving Himself to you. If God be for us, and since God is for us, since we're His children, then who in the world can be against us? So the question is a very simple one this morning. Is this God your God? Is Jesus Christ your Savior? I read for my devotional points this week a, a, one of the songs out of our hymn book. I pulled it off the shelf and read it. And this one this week was Charles Wesley's song, And Can It Be? the one the ladies did in the offertory this morning. Wesley wrote, And can it be that I should gain an entrance in the Savior's blood? And he asked that as a question. Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me amazing love how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me God died for you in the person of Christ on the cruel cross of Calvary and since he's done that he's done enough to save you and once you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior as Acts 16 31 says we should the fact of the matter is that He'll provide you with everything you need to live a successful Christian life. He not only will, he has in his word and by the provision of his spirit that indwells every believer. Today I ask you a simple question. Are you secure in your relationship with God? Do you know God for certain, for sure? And two, is he, uh, is he working in your life in a way that you see his hand and you can perceive his working and moving and doing and guiding. Do you, do you sense that? Is God God to you? Or are you far off? See no evidence whatsoever that he's doing anything in your life. Check your heart. Check your life. Be sure. Be sure. Your anchor holds. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of Romans 8. Thank you for the blessing of security that it brings and assures us of our relationship with you is something that cannot be tampered with, something that cannot be altered by man or mortal, cannot be changed by the demons of hell nor the devil himself. Thank you that these truths are in all unalterable. They're just not up for discussion, debate. They're not up for any kind of augmenting, rearranging, changing in any sense. We thank you that our salvation is anchored in such security. And this morning, I pray, remind us often this week coming, if God be for us, who can be against us? Encourage us in this. Help us, therefore, to be bold witnesses for you wherever we go. Help us to stand up against that which is wrong and stand for that which is right. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us even this day bear witness and testimony of the good grace of God that's been at work in our hearts and lives, though undeserved. I pray now for friends who are in this building, any who are here who have never in their lives believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray that they may come this morning and allow someone to take a Bible and show them from the Scriptures how they can be sure and certain of their relationship. And for certain, they there in their pews can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's for sure. And only if they have questions or concerns or need further information would it be needful for them to come down this aisle. And we recognize this morning that you want people to be saved. You desire that they come to know you through your son. So I pray that you may work in this moment and bring people to yourself as only you can. I pray for believers here this morning that you may have this message and these truths from Romans 8 to wipe out all the cobwebs of insecurity that they may have in their hearts. I pray, Father, that you'll bless your word as it's gone forth. May it meet and serve and fulfill a purpose whereto you sent it. May the Lord Jesus Christ be honored and glorified through it. In his name we pray.
Amen. Would you stand with us, please, at 282 in your hymn book, just as I am. And if God has spoken to your heart this morning and you need further information or have questions or like to talk with someone in counsel concerning trusting Christ, believing on Him as Savior, we'd be honored. We'd be delighted to help you. We invite you to come. and We'll meet you here, ask you a simple question, why have you come? And then we'll take it from there to help you. May the Lord speak to your heart, work in your life through that truth which He has written for us. But don't leave here if you have questions about that which need to be addressed. I hope you'll deal with it now as we sing. 282 and verse number 1. Together and sing. Just as I am. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? <clears throat> Thank you very much for your time.